Quote, I have been boxed up, tied up, sealed up, gagged, bound, and held. And still the voices have come to speak their message of life eternal. Unquote. Leslie Flint, renowned physical medium of the 20th century. Throughout all of humanity's existence, there has been the fascination with what happens to us after we transition. Every belief system from religion, spiritualism to science, and everything in between thinks it has the answer. But the fact of the matter is, no one really knows. In my own pilgrimage for the truth of the afterlife, I have taken many roads, been exposed to a lot of different ideas, and experienced some pretty wild stuff in the work that I do. I have personally had some strong evidence within my professional mediumship practice that confirms, to me, the soul survives beyond the death of the body. But the evidential mediumship I practice is sacred. With the information that flows through known to be true between those who step into my office and what I experience when in a channeling state, felt subjectively and quite difficult to scientifically validate. And that is what the parapsychologist, paranormal investigator, scientific-minded, and non-believers looking for, isn't it? Tangible proof of the beyond. Something that can be experienced objectively, or a piece of evidence left behind that can be examined further. This is where the practice of physical mediumship has tried to offer definitive proof of life beyond death. But what exactly is physical mediumship? In part one of a three-part exploration, I'm going to share what I've learned about the school experimental group, touted as being one of the most successful investigations into the existence of life after death. The school group has an intriguing case study into the world of physical mediumship that hadn't openly been explored since the 1930s. More than lights flickering or thumps on the walls, this group is said to have manifested full-bodied apparitions of the members of a spirit team they called the spirit scientists. Welcome to the dark side of light work. I'm Wynne Thornley. In life, I'm an esoteric teacher and channel to the ethers, specializing in demystifying the dark arts and the paranormal. I'm also a supernatural nerd and do a lot of personal research into things that go bump in the night. My fascination with the unknown began when I was a kid due to having my own misunderstood psychic experiences. I believe my lifelong fascination with the strange and unusual has prepared me for the work I'm called to do now taking me to places other lightworkers will not go. These experiences have taught me a lot about how many fallacies we are told and actually believe about the world of the unknown. Join me as I share with you what I've learned about the realms of the paranormal, mystics of the past, and places that might make you feel uneasy. I want to lift the veil a little bit and take the Hollywood out of the supernatural and metaphysics. And if you like what you hear, follow along by subscribing and please tell your friends. To start this episode, I would like to send a big, warm shout-out to Nick Seckler. Thank you so much for joining my Patreon community in the month of February. Take a scroll back and see the extra perks you now have access to, including exclusive videos, bonus episodes, and some special meditations. I appreciate your support in my independent podcasting efforts, and I welcome you to the community. I am now ready to share some haunted field trip news. My 2023 season is live and all haunted field trips are open for registration. This year, I will be returning to some powerful locations and exploring some new spots. July will be spent in Southern Alberta with two weekends carved out for some psychic field work. 
Due to the popularity and powerful experience we had in 2022, I will be returning to Frank's Slide and the Hillcrest Memorial Cemetery. Join me for a one-day adventure at one of the most energetically profound areas of Alberta. I have dates available for Saturday, July 15th or Sunday, July 16th, 2023. Your choice on the group that you would like to join. On July 29th, 2023, you will find me in Fort McLeod, Alberta, where I was able to rent the Historical Empress Theater for three hours to begin our day. This should be an interesting haunted field trip as the Empress Theater has a long history and stories of ghosts who make themselves known. This will be a day of exploring the oldest fort town in Alberta, with more activities that will help you flex your psychic senses in real-world conditions. Since we had such a magical experience in Dry Island Buffalo Jump Provincial Park last season, I will be returning to close my season down there again in 2023. This gathering will be a connection and healing event, a little bit different than the other haunted field trips. I have created a special meditation experience that will guide you into the ancient wisdom of the land, the elements, and your ancestors. This year I've carved out better dates and have been guided to offer two opportunities to gather. I will have group sessions available on Saturday, September 30th, and on Sunday, October 1st of 2023. In addition to these group haunted field trips, I have some virtual sites on my list. Since we're able to move more freely these days, I am amping up my Patreon community perks and will offer several virtual haunted field trips in 2023. Not all the locations I want to explore are group experience friendly. So I'll go check them out myself with my team and film a bunch of stuff while on site to share exclusively with my growing Patreon community. Some of these experiences might be live videos as well. At this time, I have a goal to increase my community membership to 20 patrons for this first quarter of the year. And when I do, I will also begin hosting monthly gatherings where we can explore all things strange, unusual, and paranormal. And my community will vote on the topics I'll explore. It's going to be so much fun and I would love to have you there. If you would like to learn more about my Patreon community, please head to my show notes for a link to consider. Okay, that's all for my other offerings. Now, on to the show. This episode had a lot of moving parts. There was a lot of digging into books, documentaries, the World Wide Web, and my own beliefs on this one. Most of the information I will offer in part one of my exploration on the school experiment was found in the book, The School Experiment, Scientific Evidence for Life After Death by Grant and Jane Solomon. This book was written in association with the School Experimental Group. It includes a foreword by a man named Professor Arthur Ellison, who I will discuss in more detail in the second part of this episode. Cole's notes for you. Professor Ellison is best known for his role as president of the Society of Cyclical Research in London, England. This group is considered an authority in the field of parapsychology and paranormal research. From the book, I then expanded my research into the members of the school group, physical mediumship itself, and what came of the school report. It took a lot of time to organize my thoughts over how to present this information, simply because there's a lot. In part one, I'm going to break down what physical mediumship is, the who's, what's, where's, when's, and phenomena said to be experienced by the school experimental group. There's a lot to cover, so let's dive in, shall we? 
The School Experimental Group was a group of like-minded folks who are said to have conducted a five-year case study in proving definitively that the soul survives beyond the death of the body. This group asserted that they are not affiliated with any religious, spiritual, new age group, or belief system. They are individuals who are called upon by a group of spirit scientists in order to conduct experiments that are intended to prove the theory of life after death. The school group was formed in the year 1992 by Robin and Sandra Foy. Robin Foy's early years involved training and work as a Royal Air Force pilot. After his time as a pilot, Robin went on to manage a paper company. His wife, Sandra, was a homemaker. Both had long-life interests that lay in the world of the paranormal. Physical mediumship, specifically. They actually met each other in a physical mediumship circle they both attended in Romford, Essex. The Foys went on to create their own physical mediumship groups, which eventually went on to meet twice weekly. In 1991, Robin and Sandra decided to move from their home in Postwick to Skoll. Skoll is a village located on the Norfolk-Suffolk border in the UK. Robin and Sandra would visit Skoll for little getaways on the weekends. While on a few of these visits, the Foys recall being super drawn to a charming home with an overgrown yard that sat within eyesight of their favorite coach inn. When the time came and the Foys decided to relocate to Skoll, this home was available for rent. Robin Foy has said in some interviews that this was all divinely orchestrated in a time before this life, and that this home sits on a network of earth energies known as ley lines, which will be important to note for later. Eager to resume their physical mediumship circle they started in Postwick, the Foy spoke to the original members of that circle. All four other members were also willing to continue and agreed to travel a little further for their weekly sessions. This travel time is about a 45-minute drive one way, and they would carry on for another 13 months like this. The Foy's set up their cellar, their basement, specifically for these weekly sessions, making sure it was always prepared. This involved blacking out any natural or artificial lighting, creating comfortable seating, and gathering any tools they deemed necessary for their sessions. The group lovingly called this area of the Foy's home the Skoll Hole. Right at the onset, the Foys and their group of afterlife seekers would experience an increase of physical mediumship phenomenon than they had in their post-wick location. But what exactly does that mean? Before I go any further, I want to take the opportunity to talk about what physical mediumship and mediumship actually is. When people think of mediumship these days, most often the first thing that comes to mind is someone who communicates with the dead. Whether they use cards, crystal balls, or other spiritual tools is irrelevant. But most people are unaware that this is only one area of mediumship. There are different levels and depths of training in the world of mediumship. Mental mediumship is the style we are most accustomed to. And mental mediumship is really an umbrella label as are the other two that I'll get into. But here are the basics that you need to know. Mental mediumship is where the medium, or channel to the ethers, passes along messages from the other side that they decipher through their psychic senses, better known in the business as the clairsenses. And I am sure you have heard me talk about these before, but some quick Coles notes here is, 
Uh, Clair senses are how you experience your psychic abilities. Are you a feeler, seer, hearer, or knower? Okay, that's the basics. Mediums get really good at being able to patch together what they are experiencing through these psychic senses and decipher what spirit is trying to share. Biggest difference between the development levels of a psychic, an intuitive, and the mediums of the spiritual world is that those trained to the mediumship level have the talent and ability to access information through space and time, instead of just in the here and now. Many are born with this as a natural gift, but I absolutely believe that we all have the power to learn to grow our mediumship skills if we so choose. Same as anyone can learn how to do accounting. If you have the will, you can learn how to do anything. But just like those who are good with numbers, those who come by mediumship naturally will also be naturally drawn to this line of interest and work. I want to make it clear right off the hop that mental mediumship is a subjective experience. There are tools and techniques you can learn to strengthen your confidence and connection, but no one experiences this style of mediumship 100% the same. I'll use myself as an example. When I'm doing my mental mediumship work, I have like clips of movies, photos, or random imagery that runs through my inner mind's eye. And I somehow just seem to know the right words, feelings, or phrases to use to validate to my client that I'm channeling the right person or experience, so to speak. I'm not great with letters, names, dates, or things like that, but many other mediums are. My gifts lay in being able to report back a memory, a message, or a feeling. A hip label for this kind of channeling is evidential mediumship. Basically, this is the ability to provide evidence of spirit through description of the person from life, habits, or other information that is only known by those close to the deceased. In other words, other than evidential that you will hear paired with mediumship under the mental mediumship umbrella are spiritual, elemental, angelic, empathic, and you will often hear people claim that they are natural born mediums or a generational medium. Among others, I am sure everyone seems to have a special name for it. Mental mediumship is challenging to test scientifically because these experiences are considered subjective, like I said. Other forms of mediumship include energetic mediumship and our topic of interest today, physical mediumship. Energetic mediumship is also something I'm very familiar with and have included in my professional practice since the beginning. Energetic mediumship can also be thought of as energetic healing, Reiki, biofield healing, or any style of healing art that works with the chakras, aura, and earth energies to influence or encourage balance and harmony, be it for a person, place, animal, or community. Those at the top of their training and practice in this area of mediumship also have the ability to influence energy through space and time, which is great when working with ancestral healing, past life slash collective consciousness work, or building and land curing. Out of the three umbrella variations of mediumship, physical mediumship is the most rare and the least talked about. This phenomenon is often thought as the only way to definitively prove the soul survives beyond death by the skeptics and the scientific-minded. And to be honest with you, many who practice physical mediumship are unfortunately found out to be frauds. This has not helped in the desire to seek validity of this practice to the general public. I mean, it's pretty high on the woo-woo scale of impossible, if you know what I mean. 
In recent history, physical mediumship was known to be a large part of the spiritualist movement in Europe and North America beginning in the early 1800s, with interest that was active until around the late 1950s. After that, it kind of went underground until the 1990s, with the school experimental group coming to the surface. Unlike mental or energetic mediumship, physical mediumship is objective, meaning Everyone in the room is aware a paranormal event has occurred and can describe it in the same manner. There might even be physical proof materialized that can be studied after the session. Historically, physical mediumship has been conducted in a group setting in a darkened room. The medium is always at the head of the table, and oftentimes, especially back in the day, they were confined into a three-sided box with a curtain, similar to what you would see at a puppet show. It was believed this box would assist in building and containing spiritual energy. We lovingly call gatherings like this seances. Those psychic development circles or physical mediumship circles are the more hip-to-jive wordings that we use these days. The reason groups work far better than solo attempts at physical mediumship is said to be due to the accumulation of intentional energy required to manifest results. Kind of like how you will have greater success moving a car in neutral with four people than you would with one. It makes sense, right? And even by today's standards, physical mediumship circles still take place in the dark or in a red-lit darkened room. Those who practice physical mediumship development will tell you all sessions must be conducted in the absence of artificial and natural light due to the damaging effect it has on ectoplasm that might be present during the session. Not just a Hollywood invention for movies like Ghostbusters, the belief of the legitimate existence of ectoplasm in the paranormal community has been around since the late 1800s. With the word first coined by French physiologist and cyclical researcher Charles Richet. One thing that surprised me in my research was to learn that ectoplasm has a place outside of paranormal jargon and is also found in cell biology. So it actually makes sense that a physiologist who specializes in immunology coined the word. This is what Anne-Marie Helmenstein, PhD, said about ectoplasm in her January 15, 2020 article on ThoughtCo.com titled, Is Ectoplasm Real or Fake? And I quote, Ectoplasm is a defined word in science. It is used to describe the cytoplasm of the one-celled organism, the amoeba, which moves by extruding portions of itself and flowing into space. Ectoplasm is the outer portion of an amoeba's cytoplasm, while endoplasm is the inner portion of the cytoplasm. Ectoplasm is a clear gel that helps the foot or the pseudopodium of an amoeba change direction. Ectoplasm changes according to the acidity or the alkalinity of the fluid. The endoplasm is more watery and contains most of the cell's structures. So yes, ectoplasm is a real thing. Then there's a supernatural kind of ectoplasm. The word comes from the Greek words ektos, which means outside, and plasma, which means molded or formed, in reference to the substance said to be manifested by the physical medium in a trance. Psychoplasm and teleplasm refer to the same phenomenon, although teleplasm is ectoplasm that acts at a distance from the medium. Idioplasm is ectoplasm that molds itself into the likeness of a person. Unquote. For my Patreon community, I have shared some images I found online, 
and the Dr. Hellman Steinfeld article from thoughtco.com. Check my show notes for a link to check that out after the episode. Back in the 1800s, it was believed that physical mediumship was only possible because the medium who was the focus of the seance had the ability to allow spirit to harvest their ectoplasm, with some sources adding that others in the room might lend to the harvest. Once the spirit is able to gather enough ectoplasm, it is released through an orifice of the body of the physical medium, most commonly the nose, mouth, or ears. Though some old articles I read didn't limit the exit point to just those three. The defrauded Danish medium, Einar Nelson, was discovered to have fake ectoplasm hidden in his rectum, just as a cheeky example for you. Once the ectoplasm had been exteriorized or brought up and out of the body, the belief is that the spirit would drape the translucent ectoplasm over their etheric cell or mold the ectoplasm into shape, making it possible for those in the seance to experience them physically. I know, it's pretty wild stuff, right? In some cases, the ectoplasm was said to be manipulated and formed into shapes or items that would eventually dematerialize or lose shape and return to the source body. The group in these seances were always cautioned to never turn on the lights in the middle of an ectoplasm materialization. Many of the paranormal sources I encountered believed that one of two things would happen. The first is a very old belief and it is that the ectoplasm would re-enter the medium's body at such a rate of speed that they would experience physical damage from a burning effect around the nose and mouth, internal organ damage, or even death. The other belief is that light is tremendously damaging to ectoplasm, causing it to dematerialize in an instant. There is another reason many physical mediums have held so much control over the atmosphere of a seance, I will share a little bit about one of the last physical mediums to offer the method of ectoplasm-induced physical mediumship publicly a little bit later in the episode, actually right at the end. Her name was Helen Duncan, so I'm just going to pin that for now, and we'll come back to that. I want you to know that not all physical mediumship is that fantastical. There are varying degrees of intensity. More commonly, a seance group from the early days to today's development circles might experience taps, knocks, object movement, especially at the beginning stages of their development. More advanced developed circles have reported receiving apports and asports, which are items that materialize or dematerialize in a medium's presence. There are also reports of independent spirit voice, touch, and lights, as well as table tipping and object levitation. Any of this beginning to remind you of another episode from earlier in my second season? This type of phenomenon takes a tremendous amount of time, energy, and intention to create. If even one person in your group lacks confidence and belief, this can greatly impact the results of the session. Distraction, a low vibration, or a personal agenda can also lessen the outcome. The most successful physical mediumship groups have confidence in their skills, appear intention, and meet at least once a week. And they generally meet at the same time, same place, and with the same people as often as possible in order to build the energy to manifest phenomenon like this. The ritual is very, very important. In the past, with the involvement of ectoplasm, many mediums reported that this would be exhausting work. Lending that much energy of yourself, in my opinion, is pretty reckless. 
And we know this by case studies involving many mediums of the past who just exhausted themselves or led us to believe that they did. There was a big difference with the school group. The spirit scientists they were connected to helped them develop physical phenomenon in a less invasive way. So now that we know all of this about mediumship, I think it's time to go back and explore what happened after the first 13 months in the school hole. By January of 1993, the school group was having lackluster results in their weekly sessions. In the beginning, they had sessions that included raps, taps, and the start of bigger phenomenon. And then it kind of fizzled out. It was becoming clear that the group that the Foys had been working with were no longer in alignment. When the group explored the idea of releasing some members, there was instant agreement. Beginning in early 1992, many members were finding it challenging to make the effort to drive back and forth from postwick to school twice weekly. There were many weeks it was Sandra and Robin alone keeping the school hole active. So the group decided amicably that their time had come to a close. Robin and Sandra would continue on alone for the first little while, finally finding some success with a member who joined the group in September of 1992. Some of the first sessions with a French businesswoman named Mimi began to produce their first significant phenomenon in a long while. This time it was different, though. There were clicking sounds, described as being similar to the chattering noise of false teeth. The group would later come to know this clicking to be the cue of one of the spirit team members they would go on to work with in their physical mediumship sessions. Soon after the inclusion of Mimi, the Foys would be hosting an event at a private residence sharing the wonders of physical mediumship when they would meet Ken and his friend Burnett. It turns out both were interested in joining the group's weekly sessions. Having some luck in the beginning, it wasn't long after the Foys, Mimi, Ken, and Burnett began sitting together that it became apparent that the group was not yet strong enough to expand their experiences. They were having results, but still seemed to be at a standstill. In December of 1992, the Foys would put out an advertisement in a regional newspaper calling for new members in an attempt to round out the group. Diana and Alan Bennett would answer their ad and change the whole energetic dynamics of the school hole. Diana and Alan Bennett became members of the school group on January 4th, 1993. From that point, they both stayed for the entire course of the experiment until its completion in 1998. The Bennetts are a married couple who both practice mediumship, Diana having a professional healing practice of her own before joining the circle. Her husband, Alan, worked as a carpenter in life, but shared his interest in the unknown with his wife outside of work. Prior to joining the Foys, the Bennetts would practice meditation together with the intention to feel the spirit energies around them. It is said that during their meditations together, strange things would happen. Lights would turn on and off. Sometimes, light bulbs would even burst. They shared that one time, a light bulb levitated and actually flew across the room. When the couple would meditate apart, they would experience a low-grade version of this type of activity. But when they were together, the energies would easily amplify. January 4th of 1993 was the first time all seven members sat together. It was apparent that the additions of the Bennett's energy made the school hole more alive and vibrant, and it was soon after this, the phenomenon would escalate at a rapid rate. 
One thing that should be discussed is a little bit about the school group's process. They did have a ritual they would follow, and this is so important in physical mediumship and any other metaphysical practice, really. The ritual sets up the energy and the intention will direct the flow. For the school group, we already know that they would hold these sessions in a dark cellar and they would do this twice weekly and that this went on for five years consistently. The group would bring in specific tools for each session. Over time, these tools evolved. In the beginning, they had things like a tape recorder, a spirit trumpet, and a device to play music. There was always the use of one or two of the mediums in the group for trance mediumship. This is so there was a channel to convey the messages from spirit to the group. In the early days, this was the role played by Robin and Sandra, but by the time the Bennetts joined, Diana and Alan took over these roles. It was made pretty clear that by the time the Bennetts arrived, Sandra was no longer interested in continuing this area of personal psychic development. It was mentioned in the book that I read that she seemed to feel too much pressure to perform in a group setting and wanted to step back from that responsibility. In a quick side tangent here, for those who do not know what transmediumship is, let me share a little bit more about that just for a minute. According to the author Finlay College, Essex UK, whose website claims they are the world's foremost college for the advancement of spiritualism and psychic sciences, quote, trance occurs when, through the induction of an altered state of consciousness, we allow the spirit world to capture our attention or even place a hold on our minds, enabling a closer blending with the spirit world. The degree of hold on the medium's mind will determine the quality and depth of trance. Trance is a very refined aspect of mediumship, which influences our spirituality as well as our messages in mediumship. The blending of energy between spirit control and medium can be so strong that the medium can lose awareness but does not fall asleep. Unquote. Transmediumship would fall under the umbrella of mental mediumship. It takes great practice, trust in one's abilities, and awareness of the energies you are working with to offer successful and safe trance sessions. Transmediumship was reported to have supported the school experimental group tremendously in the early stages. When the school medium sat in this trance state, the spirit scientists they were channeling would take over the session. It is said they would offer advice and detailed instructions through the mediums on how to change the room, shift attendees, or introduce certain equipment to be used in a specific way. To begin the sessions, the school group would set up the session with a positive intention, creating space for connection with spirit of the highest benefit and coming from a place of love. From there, they were instructed to play uplifting, joyful music. This was to set the ambience and raise the vibration of the group. From what I can gather, there was a specific mixtape used for each and every session. Over time, each song began to usher in reliable physical mediumship results. The tape recorder would run to capture the session for review later, and I believe I read that notes were also taken. Once the session had run its course, the mediums would come out of trance, and the session would be closed down with some type of prayer ritual, I would kind of assume. It wasn't really talked about how they actually would close down these sessions. So now we kind of get to that juicy part, folks. What kind of phenomenon did the school experimental group claim to experience? When it comes to this part of the conversation, it could take 
hours to fully unpack all of the things that Robin Foy and other witnesses claim happened over a five-year period in the school hole. This is not even including the other sites this group met at around the world either. I will cover the basics in this episode, and in no particular order unless stated. Just know that this process was progressive, and the more incredible the phenomenon, the later into the group's five-year case study it potentially occurred. I actually plan to expand the conversation on the different kinds of physical mediumship phenomenon that can be experienced within my Patreon community in some live gatherings later this year. Mainly because this group pretty much experienced it all, and there is so much to dive deeper on than this episode lends time to. So this is the foundation of what you need to know. In the beginning, I already mentioned that there was tapping and knocks being experienced. This would amplify shortly after the Foys shifted their group members in September of 1992. Robin and Sandra claimed one night after the addition of Mimi, the knocking and raps expanded out of the cellar and filled their bedroom. And for more than one evening, from what I recall, this did not deter the couple from continuing. If anything, it created more dedication to the weekly gatherings. In time, spirit lights began to appear, at first floating around the room and later interacting with the attendees. In an open session where the school group invited outsiders to experience the phenomenon, it is recorded these spirit lights would float close to and actually touch the participants. One woman actually had a spirit light enter the body, causing a calming and healing effect from what is recorded. The lights would also pay special attention to crystals that were introduced into some of the sessions. What would happen after they entered those crystals would be documented in more detail in the scientific scrutiny stage of this experiment. It wasn't long after the lights appeared before the extended voice phenomenon began. In the past, it is said that spirit would harvest ectoplasm to create a spiritual voice box in order to amplify their voice from the beyond. Because of course, they're in the etheric realm now. They don't have body parts like voice boxes to project themselves through like we do in human form. Sometimes this voice box would be formed inside the spirit trumpet and broadcasted with the help of that item. Though I haven't expanded much on it yet, the spirit team and the school group were not using ectoplasm to create the phenomenon that they were receiving. And I will clarify all that really soon here. But even still, the group began experiencing what they would call energy voices or extended voice phenomenon. And this is the experience of hearing a disembodied voice somewhere within the room, whether in the middle of the room or the corners of the room and everybody within the room hears the same voice and the same words. Earlier, I mentioned the school group had brought a spirit trumpet into their sessions. This is where an energy voice would be expected to come through, but that's certainly not what happened for the school group. Spirit trumpets have been used in seances for well over a hundred years. This is a simple device usually made from a light metal like aluminum or tin, but it is certainly not limited to this material. Sometimes you can find them in plastic and even glass. I want you to think old timey speaking trumpets or bullhorns. That's kind of what they look like. The spirit trumpet is expected to behave a few different ways during a physical mediumship session. It might tip over or even fall to the floor. It could float around the room and touch attendees. The spirit trumpet is also thought to project the voice of the spirit to strengthen its presence, as you will. In the case of the school group, 
The trumpet took a while to offer any sort of results, with the first time it just tipping over. In the weeks to follow, the trumpet would begin moving around the room by an etheric hand and eventually be used for the amplification of one of the spirit scientist's voice, with success. But the use of the trumpet was short-lived as the spirit team strengthened. Eventually, the school group would remove the spirit trumpet altogether. At one point, the spirit team asked the group to add cowbells and lights to the ceiling of the cellar. And in time, a ping on those lights would introduce Manu, their gatekeeper to the spirit world. And when a cowbell would chime, this would introduce Patrick, another spirit team member. So they started to have reliable phenomenon happening with the objects that the spirit scientists had asked the school group to bring in. Another thing that I found very interesting is that the school group had consistent contact with many of these spirit scientists. So many that in the book, The School Experiment, there is a section dedicated to these spiritual scientists, the spirit team as they're called. There's a short blurb on six to seven of the most common players, Manu and Patrick being two of them. It was very early in the Bennett's arrival to the school hole when the group would receive their very first apport. While in the darkened cellar, the whole group heard a clink as something hit the table. They were informed from the spirit team through trance that this would be the start of many more amazing things to come. When the session closed down and the lights came on, there was a Churchill crown on the table where there was none before. Robin Foy said he was not amiss of the significance of the first apport being this Churchill coin. He found this to be a huge validation for his work in physical mediumship, as he claims he's been working with the spirit of Winston Churchill for quite some time before the school group even came together. There is a decent list of apports that apparently came through some of the sessions after the appearance of the Churchill crown. The following list is just a few. Some single items that came through and materialized were an amethyst geode and two separate copies of newspapers from a time gone by. Some information on those newspapers here. The first was a copy of the Daily Mirror dated December 16, 1936, and the second being a copy of the Daily Mail, and it was dated April 1, 1944. When they first appeared, it was as if they were printed that morning. The paper was clean and crisp. Robin later confirmed that the paper was authentic to the time, so these could not be fakes. About two weeks after the newspapers came through in a port session, they yellowed the same as they would have over the course of 60 years, adding further mystery to the paranormal event. Not only were there single items apported, there were sessions where multiple apports would appear. The first multiple apport session brought through one apport for each member of the group. That would be seven in total. The items included a small pocket knife, a hairpin, two small spoons, a beaded necklace, a thimble, and a brooch. The spirit team said each item would hold significance for the recipients. And the members did confirm the connection of an apport to a hobby, a life interest, or a significant person in their lives. February 14th, 1994, would be the first of these multi-item apport sessions. As a form of explanation as to where these items materialized from, 
The school group reports that the spirit team would locate items once lost by others in another time. Even though the reports had special significance for the school group members, they were not actually items lost at some point in their own lives or ancestors' lives. The belief of reports being pulled from some sort of etheric void of lost items seems to be strong in the world of the paranormal gurus. What I will cover next is one of the most powerful sessions of physical mediumship phenomenon reported by the school group. This would be what they called Patrick Knight. The group had been building energy for a good while now, and the spirit team communicated that they were ready to attempt a full body materialization of one of the spirit team members, one calling itself Patrick. Remember how earlier I mentioned that during seances, mediums would be contained in a three-sided box? The school team was asked to build the same type of box in anticipation for Patrick Knight. When the box was ready, Patrick Knight would begin. The group gathered as normal, and at first they did not know what to expect. Soon, what appeared to be Patrick's apparition was able to materialize in that box setup the group prepared. Though it was not for a long period of time, the results for this session were nonetheless mind-blowing. And this would not be the last time they would experience full-body materialization. I have briefly touched upon that there was a major difference in the old method of ectoplasm extraction and the way in which the school spirit team was able to manifest physical phenomenon in tandem with the school group. What was shared by Robin Foy in books and interviews is that the spirit scientists were using three different types of energy to manifest a physical outcome in the 3D realm. The first is what they referred to as creative energy, which came from the spirit world. The second was human spirit energy. And the third is earth energies. The earth energies that they speak about are what we know as ley lines. With the earth energies, they are either naturally occurring on ley lines or vortex points, or if unavailable, the spirit team creates a gateway within the earth energy lines themselves. Now, I'm not really too sure how positive that is, but I will unpack how I feel about that in part three of this exploration. Robin Foy has mentioned in interviews that the Holman School sat on a very powerful ley line, one known as the St. Michael ley line, or the Michael and Mary ley line. This bit of information led me on a search to find out if this was in fact true. So I did come across some maps that I will share with my Patreon community that outlines exactly where this ley line is said to flow through. And I will share whereabouts school is in relation to this ley line. One of the biggest draws or interest to come out of the school hole above and beyond everything I've already talked about, was their evidence of alleged spiritual photography. From what the school group shared, the combination of spirit, human, and earth energies would allow the spiritual scientists to manifest some pretty wild stuff on film. Spirit photography has been around as long as cameras have been. Be it orbs, mist, figures in the background, or what appears to be a full-bodied apparition, spirit photography is also highly debated as being authentic. The reason being is that technical issues and trickery in photography have also been around as long as cameras have. 
lens flare, movement while taking the image, odd lighting, depth perspective, dust, insects, and pareidolia are the major factors to consider when ruling out legit spirit photography, with lens flares being the most common. This is identifiable by the bluey, greeny orbs of light that you see in your mobile phone images as an example. Though others like to say dust and bugs are second on the list, I don't think enough people are talking about pareidolia. So what is pareidolia? Pareidolia is where we can see something in a photo or video, but our brains cannot quite make sense of it. Our brains will then try to match this oddity to something we know from the past. Many times our brain will create faces or items where there are just shadows. And if it's a little bit spooky, then kabam! demon in the couch cushions. Know what I'm talking about? Makes sense, right? Oftentimes, someone else's pareidolia will influence others to see the exact same thing, because most often the original viewer points out exactly where you should be looking and exactly what you should be seeing. You can bear witness to this in all of those fake paranormal videos out there today. I don't even want to get started on how easy it is to digitally enhance a photo or video these days either. Trust me when I say that it takes some pretty perfect conditions to capture spirit energy on film or digitally. So I ask you, when you see these paranormal videos or photos online, check in to see if it feels real. The spirit photography that the school group came out with was nothing like anyone had seen before. To start this phenomenon, the group was asked by the spirit team to bring a camera into the sessions. The mediums were initially instructed to snap pictures whenever they were told to by the spirit team. It wasn't long before the cameras would appear to take the photos themselves and begin to float around the room. To start, the images produced were of already existing images taken throughout history, kind of like the Apports. There was a grainy image of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Yes, he was an author, but he was also an avid occult student and a Golden Dawn member. Another famous image produced was of the St. Paul's Cathedral taken during the Blitz, and there was many more of the like. More people, more places, And the spirit team would say that these were taken from images that were already existing. These images would evolve into psychedelic lava lamp-like imagery with faces forming in the bubbles. The faces that formed within the abstract images were said to be of spirit team members. Soon, the school group would find their undeveloped film with written passages from ancient Indian texts. The spirit team would begin these experiments with film by asking the school group to bring in a variety. Several different kinds of Polaroid films were used, from the classic 4x6 Polaroid that we all know and love, to the 35mm and a few in between. The Foys, Bennetts, and other group members swear these images were all obtained in the school hole and were created by the spirit team members. The school group was requested by the spirit team to create a container from wood and glass that the film was to be placed within. And this was done for a couple of reasons. The first was to show that the group members were not tinkering or interfering with the film themselves, but it was also to build the spiritual energy needed to expose the film to spiritual images. At first, any photo paper or film was to be laid out flat, but after the creation of the glass and wood container, 
The spirit team would build up the energy to eventually be able to manipulate a 35 millimeter roll of film without it ever being taken out of the canister. The Foys would even talk to Polaroid about the results they received during the sessions. As an example, you know the regular old instant Polaroid film? This is the same film that was used in the school hole at some point. To begin with, the team wasn't sure how to develop the film after the session. If you don't know, how that instant film and special camera works is that the developing chemicals are already contained within the film packet. When the photo is taken, the film is exposed to light through the lens, and as it's being pushed out of the camera, this activates the developing chemicals and voila, your images appear slowly but surely. At first, the school group was trying other methods to try to develop this film, like heavy rolling pins and bars being rolled over the film with little to no result. Then they figured, why not use the camera as intended? So after a session of the Polaroid film laying out on the table in the school hole, the Polaroid film was put back into the camera, still in the dark, mind you, and a picture was taken but with the lens cap on, so not to expose the film to any light. The camera would then spit out the film paper as normal, activating the developing chemicals, and all of a sudden, the school group was seeing dreamy, flowing colors of greens on some film paper and blues on others. When Robin Foy presented this evidence to Polaroid, he said that their experts could not explain those results. After this connection, Polaroid would begin working with the school group by providing different sizes of paper and guidance on how to use their home film processing machine with ease. You might be asking yourself, were there any skeptics or challengers of this experiment into physical mediumship? The school group would be under some serious scrutiny from the parapsychology and paranormal community alike. In part two of my exploration of the school experiment, I will talk about the school report and what the community has to say about Robin Foy and his claims of physical mediumship. The highly respected Society of Psychical Research joined the school group for two years of gatherings, resulting in their lengthy and thorough school report. I will share what their report revealed and what others in the paranormal community have to say. In part three, I will share my thoughts about this groundbreaking experiment into the survival of the soul beyond death and what I believe might be happening here. I am already working on these episodes, so watch for part two to drop here soon, with part three being released as a bonus episode for my Patreon community. But before I let you go, I want to go back to Helen Duncan. Remember I pinned this conversation earlier? Helen Duncan was a famous Scottish medium well known from the 1930s to about the 1950s. She was one of the last documented mediums to famously include ectoplasm in her physical mediumship demonstrations. She is also the last known medium to be imprisoned under the Witchcraft Act of 1735 for her fraudulent claims. Earlier, I mentioned how it was stressed, how incredibly dangerous it was to turn on the lights during a seance that produced ectoplasm. The work of Helen Duncan would highlight the more sinister reason why control of the atmosphere was so important. Helen Duncan was found out as using cheesecloth and plaster dummies to make others believe she was conjuring spirits. Pretty easy to disguise this in 
an almost pitch black room, right? Her fraud was actually revealed in flash photography, which I'm going to share these images with my community. And her ectoplasm was tested, revealing it as cheesecloth. Duncan was not the only so-called physical medium to use these materials or tactics either. Besides cloaking the medium and their fraudulent ectoplasm and such, the three-sided box was also used to help hide helpers of the charlatans. The helpers would sneak around the darkened room, tipping tables, reflecting light, or touching, blowing on, or whispering at the attendees. The helpers would also help manipulate the quote-end-quote ectoplasm. The reason physical mediumship demonstrations diminished by the 1950s is because technology got better, and people got wiser and way more discerning. It was much more challenging to trick the public, and to be honest, physical mediumship does not get the attention it deserves because of all the fraudsters of the past. Pop by for part two, and I will explore if this type of mediumship is even possible, and what the believers and critics have to say. Thank you so much for popping by and spending time with me today. I really appreciate you being here. I invite you to leave a message at my Anchor FM page, letting me know how you like the dark side of light work. Feel free to share your personal experience with a show topic, or even share a show idea. I listen to each message and may include your idea in a future episode. Since I'm an independent podcast host and producer, a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, a follow on Spotify, or a review on where you're listening to me right now would really help others find my show. And a quick share of this episode or others that you've enjoyed is really appreciated as well. Outside of my podcast platforms, you can find me on social media by searching for The Dark Side of Lightwork with Wynne Thornley. And if you like bonus content, I've been raving about my Patreon community all episode. A $5 a month pledge helps with the growth and expansion of The Dark Side of Lightwork. And I have lots of exclusive content already available for my loyal Patreons that isn't available anywhere else. Behind the scenes research content, meditation, bonus episodes, and videos. Any support is welcome, and I feel grateful for all the support I have already received. Thank you so much. I'm also expanding the conversation of my other passion of working with the empathic, psychic, intuitive, and mediumship community as a top mentor over on the Wisdom app. There, you can find me going live throughout the month. Wisdom is a blend of live radio and podcasting as all live conversations become archived so you can listen in later. Wisdom also offers the option to chat live with me, so I invite you be my guest, and join the conversation. I wanted to thank you once again for listening into the end. I look forward to dropping the next episode soon. So until then, take good care.